welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. As you know, this year we are celebrating the 400th anniversary of the printing of the first folio of Shakespeare's plays. So in a small diversion from the current timeline of the narrative, and to offer my own small contribution to that celebration, here is the first of a short series of special episodes devoted to the first folio. How and why it was created and what the afterlife of some of the surviving copies has been. To kick-start this investigation, I took myself off to London recently to take a look at some of the copies of the first folio that are currently on display. Some are on permanent exhibition as part of England's literary history. Some are on limited display as part of the celebrations for the 400th anniversary. So, it was a great opportunity to see several copies of the first folio in one visit to the capital. It was a very bright summer's morning, the sort you can get in May in England, where things start off just a little on the cool side, but soon build up to over 20 degrees centigrade. I was standing at my local train station for the relatively short but slightly complicated journey into central London. From where I live, just 25 miles from London's West End, I have to catch a small train that shuttles to the mainline station that takes me into Paddington or, on the directly connected and newest underground line into central London, the Elizabeth Line, opened just last year. The Elizabeth Line is a great addition to the transport system in London, running west to east and underground in new tunnels through the centre of town. But on this occasion, I changed at Paddington Station to one of the older underground lines, the Bakerloo Line, first opened in sections between 1906 and 1915 to get to Piccadilly Circus, right in the heart of London's theatreland. A short walk up Regent Street, still decked out with flags following the coronation of King Charles, took me to my first stop, Christie's of London, the world-famous auction house. They currently have two small rooms devoted to the display of six first-folio copies, all housed under glass and in darkened rooms. So here we were, my first proper look at an original first folio copy. This particular copy, known as the Grey Blatchford Sterling copy, was presented open at page 80 and 81 of Troilus and Cressida. The first thing that strikes you is how large and thick this book is, and what a significant undertaking the printing of it must have been. My previous guest, Colin Rees, characterised the first folio as a coffee table book, and this is a good modern comparison. It must be a weighty thing to carry around. It is, after all, 900 pages long. So, not a book that was going to be used for performance purposes. Each numbered page carries the title of the play, with the text divided between two columns per page. Even on this first view, one can see that the copies carry the marks of usage, in this case, a smudge, I think, from a sticky finger, in the middle of the second column of page 80. That in itself may not be particularly significant, but other marks on other copies are, and they illustrate what is important about the first folio. The veneration in which these copies are held is not just about the place they hold in the history of printing, or the fact that it served as a great preserver of Shakespeare's plays, although both of these things are very important. But there is a whole historiography about what happened to the copies in the subsequent 400 years, how they were used, and what they tell us about attitudes to Shakespeare through the centuries. The Grey Blanchard Sterling copy was the earliest recorded copy to make it across the Atlantic to America. 
It was bought by Francis Calley, a well-connected politician who was said to be on friendly terms with Thomas Jefferson and John Quincy Adams, among many others. He was in London in 1830, so it's assumed that this is when he bought the copy to augment his already extensive art and book collection. Within the next 50 years, 18 copies are known to have followed the same path, and today there are more copies of the first folio in America than in any other individual country. But more of that later. This particular copy made the return journey in 1935, when it was put up to be sold at auction. It was bought by Sir Louis Sterling, an American expatriate, early entrepreneur in the gramophone business and avid book collector. On his death in 1956, he left his library to the University of London, from whence this first folio copy has been loaned for the exhibition. The second exhibit is a copy open at the famous portrait of Shakespeare and the title Mr William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies, published according to the true original copies. This is the Murray copy. Acquired in 1821 by the second John Murray, the head of the famous publishing company, it has stayed with the family ever since. The Murrays published such luminaries as Lord Byron, Walter Scott and Jane Austen in their time, amongst many others. The Murray first folio was rebound and cleaned, something we would probably not consider doing today, but this reflects the elevated status that the first folio had reached by the 19th century. The rebinding was of the highest quality available at the time, and the Murrays took advantage of it to add some pages from the 1632 second folio that was in their possession. It is a particularly special edition, as it includes a note in praise of Shakespeare by John Milton, which is thought to be his first appearance in print. The third exhibit, the Arundel Castle copy, is shown open at the final page of King John and the opposite opening page of Richard II. On the last page of a play, the two columns of text are evened out, leaving an empty space at the end of the page, which is then filled with a decorative scroll of intricate design. The opening page of a play has a similarly decorative block above the title which is in large print, taking up about a quarter of the depth of the page and the full width. This copy is one of only five complete copies that are in private hands. In this case, those hands belong to the Duke of Norfolk. In a line that goes back to the time of Richard I, it is the 18th Duke that currently holds the title, with the seat of the peerage being at the very fine Arundel Castle. The family, and therefore this copy, have a direct connection to the Shakespeare play. The first Duke was a player in a power struggle that resulted in the downfall of Richard II. Shakespeare's play opens with Thomas de Mowbray, the first Duke, arguing with Bolingbroke. The Vernon copy, shown at the end of All's Well That Ends Well and the opening of Twelfth Night or What You Will, is on loan to the exhibition from a private owner and the University of Birmingham, where it usually resides in the Cadbury Research Library. It again shows the highly decorative style of the production of the book, but the real interest here is how the provenance of this copy has been possibly traced back to its original owner. The trail starts in 1742, when its possession by Sir Hardolf Westernese is well documented, and the copy has been in the family possession ever since. There are a couple of signatures written into this copy, dating from the 17th century, which also appear to belong to ancestors of the family. 
One of these, Thomas Johnson, lived in London in 1623, in the area near Fleet Street where the printing shops were. Church records show that he served on a committee with John Smethwick, one of the printers involved with the first folio, and John Jaggard, who owned the presses that the folio was printed on. So it's quite possible, but sadly not provable, that Thomas Johnson bought this copy on publication, and it has been in his family ever since. When first produced, the folio could be purchased as loose sheets or bound in calf leather. One of the earliest records of a purchase is by one Sir Edward Deering, who paid £2 for two copies, almost certainly the bound version. The Vernon copy was rebound in 1875 by W.C. Tuckett, who was resident bookbinder at the British Museum. With a foresight not common to his time, he overbound the original leather, so it's still present inside the new binding. The Halliwell-Watson copy can't quite match this provenance, but it has been in the same family for over 150 years. It was acquired by James Orchard Halliwell, one of the greatest Shakespeare scholars of his time. He was a founding member of the Shakespeare Society, edited, published versions of the plays and wrote many critical works on them. He was a collector and trader of books, and at one point it was said that he was in possession of six copies of the first folio. Perhaps not surprising then that he had a keen sense of the value of the first folio. When he sold this copy to William Horatio Crawford, Crawford added a note in the inner cover of the prices paid for the first folio from the 17th century to 1870. His record shows the relentless rise from the original £1 to 682 guineas in 1870, which is £716. As you might know, the last copy to be sold at auction in 2022 fetched $2.4 million. The Halliwell Watson copy was then acquired by Sir Edward Watson. He had to fight off an attempt by Henry Folger to buy this copy. Folger was the greatest collector of the folio copies and 82 copies now reside at the Folger Institute in Washington DC. More of him and his impact on the historiography of the first folio later. Sir Thomas had his copy rebound in Red Morocco to match copies of the second, third and fourth folio that he also owned and which he'd had similarly bound. In the exhibition, this copy, which has never been on public display before, was open at the beginning of The Tempest. The last copy on display at Christie's was the Honeyman copy, another loan from a private owner. It's interesting particularly because of the annotations that have been added to it, some of which date from the first decades after it was produced. The handwritten editions include corrections to the texts and the names of actors who performed in the plays. Many later annotations point to the growing trend of the fetishization of the first folio as an object to be possessed in itself. The notes in this copy include references to plays that would have otherwise been lost without inclusion in the first folio. The copy was open at the final pages of Julius Caesar, opposite the opening of Macbeth, with its dramatic opening stage direction, Thunder and Lightning, Enter Three Witches. And for me, it was briefly back into the sunshine for the walk to Green Park and then underground again to emerge at King's Cross St Pancras Station. From there, a short walk took me to the British Library.
The building is relatively new, not quite 30 years old, but the institution goes back to 1753, when the collection of books and manuscripts was part of the British Museum. The first folio they have on display is in their Treasures Gallery, where Shakespeare sits in close company with not only examples of printed editions of other greats of English literature, but Buddhist texts, many medieval and earlier Bibles, letters from great thinkers to other great thinkers, the Magna Carta, and original lyrics by three of the four Beatles. Their first folio copy was open at Shakespeare's portrait that I mentioned earlier, but this one is a little different. To create the portrait, Dutch-born artist Martin Droeschout, who was living in London at the time, made a plate engraving. After just a few prints, which may well have been thought of as test prints, the engraving was enhanced with highlighting added and a small adjustment made to the jawline and the moustache area. Only four copies exist where the engraving was in its original state, the majority being from the engraving in what's now called its second state. It was time for a bit of a break, so I made my way to the City of London and walked to Love Lane. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? In fact, it's just a very built-up road near the heart of the old city, but it does have a small public garden, the St Mary Aldermanbury Garden. Records of the site go back to 1181, where there was a church on the site that was rebuilt over the centuries. The name probably comes from an endowment it received from the late Alderman Berry. A version of the church, designed by London's greatest architect, Sir Christopher Wren, rose on the site after the existing building was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666. The church survived the centuries until 1940, when it was heavily damaged during the bombing of London in the Second World War. It took a direct hit from an incendiary bomb, and by morning only the structural walls were left standing. The site lay in ruins until 1965, when a plan was hatched to move them to Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, as a memorial to Winston Churchill. The project of building a replica of the church around those imported ruins was completed in 1969. The site in London was turned into a small public garden. Since 1896, the site has been home to a memorial to John Heminge and Henry Condell, the actors who edited the first folio. It seemed a very appropriate stop to rest for a few moments. The memorial is made of a pink granite rectangular block about eight feet tall, and on top of it sits a bust of Shakespeare. This is said to be based on what are generally thought to be the two best likenesses of Shakespeare that we have. The portrait on the frontispiece of the first folio, and the funerary monument in the church at Stratford-upon-Avon. The detail on the plinth records the names of Hemmage and Condell as fellow actors and personal friends of Shakespeare, and that they lived many years in the parish and are buried here. In grand Victorian style, but somewhat quoting from the editors themselves, it continues, To their disinterested affection, the world owes all that it calls Shakespeare. They alone collected his dramatic writings regardless of pecuniary loss, and without the hope of any profit, gave them to the world. They thus merited the gratitude of the world. Which is probably not too far from the truth. On the opposite side of the plinth is another plate which details the memorialised. Of John Heminge, he says that he lived in this parish upwards of 42 years and in which he was married. He had 14 children, 13 of whom were baptised, 4 buried and 1 married here.
He was buried here October the 12th, 1630. His wife is also buried here. Of Henry Condell, it says that he lived in this parish upwards of 30 years. He had nine children, eight of whom were baptised here and six buried. He was buried here December the 29th, 1627. His wife was also buried here. The inscription ends with a quote from Shakespeare's Henry VIII, Act 3, Scene 2. Let all the ends thou aimest at be thy countries, thy gods, and truths. The third face of the plinth carries a quote from the preface of the first folio, and above it, set out as if in an open book, Hemingen Condell's words about the collected works. We have but collected them, and done an office to the dead without ambition of self-profit or fame, only to keep the memory of so worthy a friend and fellow alive as was our Shakespeare. The memorial was commissioned by Charles Clement Walker, another Victorian Shakespeare enthusiast who made his money managing ironworks in the Midlands of England. It was time to move on. I left the quiet of the garden and walked towards the River Thames, past the many modern concrete buildings that now dominate this part of the city of London and crowd in on you. But then I turned a corner and there was the river and the Millennium Footbridge. To my left was the majestic dome of Wren's greatest work, St Paul's Cathedral. In front of me, across the river, Southwark. No worries touting for business these days, no marshy riverbanks to negotiate, just pleasure boats for tourists, the river buses, and an occasional heavy commercial barge. You might remember that the Millennium Bridge was the one that wobbled so much when it first opened that people fell sick as they walked across it. Stabilisers were added, and it is now, thankfully, very firm and still. As you walk across the bridge, there is a great view of the reconstruction of the Globe Theatre, just a few hundred yards from the position of the original and, at low tide, the beaches on the Southwark side. No bear baiting there now, for sure, and, as far as I know, no brothels, but plenty of riverside pubs and theatrical entertainment. I was, of course, headed to the Globe Theatre to see the folio copy that they have on display there. But that area was closed off, so my visit was curtailed. The outer courtyard, the foyer, the gift shop, the cafe, just everywhere was heaving with people, mostly quite young ones. School groups who had been on theatre tours and taking part in the extensive educational programme that is run there. The area where the folio copy is on display is only open on performance days, which was not one when I was there. It was frustrating not to be able to see the folio at the Globe, but it was, nevertheless, gratifying to see so many younger people enjoying the Globe and learning about Shakespeare and everything associated with him. I shall make a point of stopping by their copy the next time I'm there for a performance at the theatre. It is the Munro first folio that is on display at the Globe. This is considered to be one of the best-preserved copies with very few stains or repairs. The copy had found its way to Scotland and into the possession of Gilbert Lang Meeson, a Scottish landowner. When he died in 1832, his estate faced some financial problems and his house and its possessions, including the library, were sold to Sir Thomas Munro, who at some point had the folio rebound and his coat of arms added to the inside cover. The family sold this copy to a private buyer in 1976. And that was the end of my first folio day in London.
There is one other copy on display at the moment in London, in the National Maritime Museum. Unfortunately, that was just a bit too far outside of central London for me to get to in the time I had. That copy will be on display until mid-September. There is also usually a copy on display at the Victoria and Albert Museum in South Kensington, but their theatre exhibition is temporarily closed until later in the summer. But it will be back when they open the refurbished collection. I feel an autumn visit coming on. I hope you feel inspired to seek out a first folio copy near you. The exhibition at Christie's is now closed, but many other copies are scattered around the world. They are beautiful objects in themselves, and I certainly found that seeing these pages and really trying to understand the effort, and and yes, I don't think the word is inappropriate, the love that went into producing them, brought me a little closer to the Elizabethan mind. Seeing pages that were thumbed by Shakespeare's contemporaries, that were loved and cared for by generations of theatre lovers, and yes, that were bought and sold for more mercenary reasons, just sums up how Shakespeare and the First Folio have weaved their way into the English national consciousness. So I have no doubt that there are many reasons why they are important documents, each and every one of them. In the second part of this celebration of the anniversary of the printing of the first folio, I'm going to take a look at the motivations for producing the folio, the practicalities of how it was achieved, and the people who worked on the project. And then there will be some stories about what has happened to the individual copies and what they mean to us since then. If you'd like to see pictures of the first folio editions that I saw in London and of the memorial in Love Lane, then you can find them on the blog post page on the website. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. If you'd like to help support the podcast, the easiest thing would be to pass on the word to anyone you think might be interested in a bit of theatre history, Or if you have a moment, write a review and rate the podcast on your podcast app of choice. You can find details of other ways to support on the podcast website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. There is also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. You can also find details of that on the website and there's a link in the show notes. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.